The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning, we are continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of heaven on earth, that the king has entered, and that he is establishing his kingdom. He has called his first disciples invited them to follow him, and now he takes them away, as it were, to a mountain, to this place, raised up, and he begins to teach them about the kingdom. He begins to teach them about what does it mean to have life in him and to follow him, because it was a very different kingdom from the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdoms of any uh, given human establishment. And others were leaning in. Others were wanting to hear, and so it says that he gathered both the disciples and the crowds around him to listen to him. And we've heard him speak about what does it mean, what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? That those people, those of us who are part of that, are the most blessed of all people. That there is a sense of emptying that we recognize we have nothing in and of ourselves. And in that it creates a longing and a hunger for righteousness. And we find that God doesn't create in us an appetite that doesn't have something to satisfy it. And if we recognize that there are appetites in this world that cannot be satisfied, there must be another world. There must, must be another source for those appetites to be satisfied and for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, uh, those who find themselves impoverished and meek, uh, that there must be a satisfaction afforded to us in Christ. And he says, if you come and find my righteousness, you'll be satisfied in that. And you will be people who are incredibly merciful, people who uh, have a deep love for purity, people who are peacemakers. That's who you are. That's what it looks like. And the world, they didn't like the king who entered in, and they're not going to like those who follow the king. And so many will be persecuted. He said, expect it. But if you're persecuted on my account, rejoice, for great is your name, and the kingdom of heaven is yours. And he said, these people, us, followers of Jesus Christ, when we live in the world, we're noticed. He gives these two metaphors of salt and light, that the Christian life is never designed to be lived in private. It's to be seen, that it has an effect within the world around us, uh, that we're salty. That is, that we help by our very presence to retard, as it were, uh, the, the presence of evil and its spread just by the very presence of a believer in a situation. Small point in case, Matt Scott and I I grabbed a lift, we were driving around downtown Louisville, and we were heading back to our hotel, and the young man picked us up, and he was foul-mouthed, and he was probably on something, and he was rattling away, and he was letting all kinds of words go, and he was talking about a subject matter which we can't repeat publicly, and then he said, so what do you guys do? (laughs) Love that question. And Matt was trying not to shame the young man. He said, well, we're in town for a a conference. Really? What kind of conference? All right. We gave you an opportunity to stop asking questions. We said, well, we're pastors and we're here for a conference on doxology and theology on worship. Oh! And all of a sudden the conversation changed. 
The presence of salt retards, keeps evil. He goes, oh no, there's something good. He knew enough within his worldview to say, wait a second, there's now good. There's now something in the car. And I can't keep going down the way I was going. That's salt. And light shines. Light's meant to shine. It's a house. It's a city on a hill. It's a lamp within a house uh, that is strategically placed to both expose the darkness for what it is, and that's dark, and to lead people to light. And the question then becomes, are we people who are salty in the positive biblical way and light to a world that desperately needs to see that? Are we giving taste to the world? Are we saying this life was designed to be lived to the fullness of it? That God has given us the perfect life and so we live it this way. And so now Jesus is saying, okay, we understand who you are. You are now salt and light. You're living in the world. People are going to be looking at you. Well, let's begin to understand how we have this now radical righteousness, as it were, uh, this righteousness given to us by Christ, how that is lived out within the world. And he must have considered that some were thinking, ah, new king, new kingdom, he must be bringing in a new law. And Jesus now begins in verse 17 to explain the law, as it were, the rules, the, uh, the manifestos of his kingdom and its precepts. And he said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I love how Jesus speaks, because there were some within that crowd who were thinking that, and they must have been going, wait a second, how did he know that? He says, I know that some of you have a misunderstanding of the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. He adds blessing to the reading and hearing of it. So in the moments that we have, we're going to consider two thoughts. What was Christ's relationship to the law? And then what is the Christian's relationship to the law? How do we understand Christ's relationship to it, how he teaches on it, and then we take that and apply it to our lives. So Christ said, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. First thing you need to understand about Christ's teaching is that he teaches as one with authority. It's subtle, but you pick up here how he speaks. I say to you. It was a total change from the rabbinic traditions of the day, which would have said, well, I, Rabbi Bill, am quoting Rabbi uh, Bob, who's quoting Rabbi so-and-so, and we quoted rabbinic tradition. Jesus is saying, I don't care about rabbinic tradition. Rabbinic tradition has actually perverted the law and the proper understanding of the law. The scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis who have come before me have taken this beautiful law and have perverted it, and I'm bringing now and saying to you, this is truth. Verily, verily, truth, truth, I say to you, 
This is how you should understand these things. And people were amazed by him. They were amazed that he spoke with authority. They were amazed that he didn't ask for their opinion. That he said, this is the truth. And what he was saying to us now as well, because we're leaning into his sermon, is saying, this is truth, deal with it. If I am who I say that I am, the Son of God, equal with God the Father, in power and in glory, if I am who I say that I am, then what I say to you matters. That's the big deal, by the way, folks. What you believe about Jesus Christ matters. And if you believe that he is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, then you have to listen to what he says. And when he begins and says, I say this to you, our ears should perk up. We should go, okay, I'm listening. What does he have to say? And here's part of the first thing that he has to say. I believe all scripture is inspired by God. That's what he basically was saying. He was saying, I believe the law and the prophets. Not one part of the law and the prophets, which is a a Jewish way of encapsulating all of the Old Testament, because that's what Jesus had. That was his Bible. He was saying, I believe in the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God, that it is immutable. He says it's not going to pass away. Not one jot or tittle, not one iota, not one little mark. And those marks that he's talking about, one uh, was the yod, uh, it was the smallest letter, and there are, uh, somebody counted 66,420 yods in the Old Testament. He said not one of them, and one seraph, the least stroke, the dot, and there were innumerable seraphs in the Old Testament. He said not one of these is going to pass away. He was teaching on the inspiration, he was teaching on the immutability uh, of of the scriptures, the importance of the Old Testament. He always mentioned it this way. When you see him say, it is written, know that it's in the perfect tense, gagraptai, which means it was written, it is written, and it always will be written this way. It has been, it is, and it will be. It's never going to change. He's saying, don't come to me and think that I'm going to modify the Old Testament in some way. The scriptures are more enduring than the universe. In Matthew 24, 35, he says this incredible statement, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So what do we do with that? Well, we understand a little bit, and I don't have time to go into a whole sermon on, on the, uh, our understanding of scripture, but know this, as is popular in today, we don't want to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We can't understand Jesus, and we cannot understand his teachings and all the teachings of the New Testament without going back into the Old Testament to understand them. Jesus was teaching as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, teaching as the completion of it, teaching upon its authority. And I imagine if most of you picked up your Bibles and you were to hold them up and see where all your marks were, most of them would be over on this side. And that's even got your indexes in it, and you've got to go to your maps, so it's really this little section. That's where most of us spend our time, and we've missed this part, which actually is larger than, and it informs all of this. We can't understand anything on the right-hand side if we don't understand what's going on on the left-hand side. I get it that we say, yeah, but I just, I just need the New Testament. Okay, try to understand the New Testament without the Old. See how that works. 
We need to understand the Old Testament. And Jesus said, here's what I understand about the Old Testament and about the law and the prophets. Here's what I understand about all of it. I came to fulfill the law, not to annul it. Everything about the Old Testament points to me. Everything spoken in the Old Testament, all of it has a picture of Christ in it somewhere. That in order to understand all of the beauty of the Old Testament, we have to see it perfectly fulfilled in Christ That Jesus said this, I fulfilled all the messianic passages of scripture. Everything that pointed to the coming Messiah, that Messiah that was promised, uh, that son of man who was going to come back, all of those great pictures, that was pointing to me. And when John the Baptist, an Old Testament prophet as it were, the last of them, uh, was in prison, and he didn't know it, but he was going to be beheaded, that he was in prison, he sent envoys to Jesus and he said, ask him if he's the one. Can you, can you just hear the desperation in his voice? The deep desire to go, I'm going to die. And I want to know that I'm going to die for the right reasons. That I've staked my life uh, upon the right stake. You know what Jesus said? Go quote to him the messianic prophecies. Go tell him that the lame walk and the dead rise. That the blind see. Jesus said, take him back to the Old Testament. Don't you dare unhitch him from that Old Testament. Take him back there and say, John, I'm the one. I've fulfilled all of the prophecies. That's why he was so upset with the scribes and the Pharisees. They should have known, and yet they rejected him. They did know, and yet they rejected him. So Jesus said, I came to fulfill all the messianic prophecies. Jesus said, I came to satisfy all the law's demands, that great line uh, within the hymn that we sang. Because what Jesus understood and what every Jewish person understood, when they saw a sacrifice, when there was a sacrifice of a dove or a bull or a goat or anything that was sacrificed, they saw the blood and they realized this, the covenant between God and man had been broken, that man had messed up on our side of the equation. By the way, when there's a problem, it's never on God's side of the equation. It's always on ours. And so they were programmed Oh, I see blood, I see blood at the temple, I see this going on. There has to be punishment for the breaking of the covenant, and it's pointing, all of that was pointing to something. Jesus says, yes, I'm the Passover lamb. It's been pointing to me, you don't have to kill another animal. And by the way, as an aside, there is absolutely no need for the temple in Jerusalem to ever be rebuilt again. Jesus said it doesn't need to be there. All of the sacrificial system pointed to him, He said, I'm the sacrifice. I've perfectly completed the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. I'm the sacrifice. My blood had to be spilled for you. I've satisfied the law's demands in that way because I perfectly perfectly kept all of its commandments. He was born under the law, Galatians 4.4, to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. He kept the law perfectly, never failing at even its smallest point. How many of you have never messed up on anything? Thank you for not raising your hand. We've messed up. I, we mess up at every level. God's standard and His level. But we mess up even on our own level. We create our own laws, right? You have your own laws by which you live, certain ways that you're going to do things. And we can't even live by those standards, much less God's perfect standards. 
I'm trying to be a little better in what I eat or don't eat. And this morning, I was sharing this from the first service, uh, this morning a friend brought me coffee, and I appreciated coffee, but he also brought some donut holes. I was like, not going to eat the donut holes, but I'm going to make sure the other people get the donut holes. That's who they were intended for. And the other people left, and the donut holes were sitting there. So I changed my law. I'll only eat one donut hole. I changed my, I failed at my own law. How much more do we fail at God's perfect law, which never changes? And Jesus was saying, I, on the other hand, I did it perfectly. I didn't miss one bit of it. I am the perfect law keeper. And therefore, because he satisfied the law's demands and all of the commands within the law, he now gives us his perfect righteousness. His perfect satisfaction is given to us in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now we have been given the righteousness of Christ given to us by the spirit of God which now allows us to view as William Cooper so beautifully said, now the law... I see not as a demand, but as a choice. I want to obey that. It changes us in that. Because what we recognize is this. The law, part of its function, was to drive us to Christ. Under the law's demands, that great song, under the law's demands, I was crushed. Under the law's demands of perfection. And some of you are coming out of homes And you're coming out of church backgrounds where you have been taught God demands 100% perfection from you. That in order for you to be loved, you have got to stop doing these things. And you've got to start doing these things. And some of you are going, "Ah, yeah, I used to be Catholic. Here's what I know. I know that all of us hold on to those vestiges of Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, because we look and we wonder and we're terrified. Have I committed a mortal sin? Have I done something? That has caused God not to love me. Now, I'll, I'll deal with the venial sins. I'll, I'll deal with the little ones. I try not to. But every one of those, a little bit of that love of God, that righteousness of God for me, drains out of that eternal cosmic tub. And I'm hoping uh, that I die. Uh, that I have done enough good things to fill that tub back up with some righteousness. That when I die, there's some drip, even one drop of righteousness left. Because if I die and there's no one there, I'm lost. The law has crushed you in its demands. And Jesus is saying, I've fulfilled it perfectly to drive you, to lead you. Galatians chapter 3, 2, 24. I've done it to lead you to myself. And therefore, okay, we see how Christ understood the law, what its purpose was. How do we now as Christians deal with the law? A few things. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What a powerful and misunderstood statement. And so Jesus is saying, okay, the law matters. 
That's the first thing you should understand as a Christian in relationship to the law. God's perfect, holy law, it matters. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, great, large, big in view, then you need to have a high view of the law. You need to have a high view of personal piety and of righteousness within our lives. You shouldn't diminish it, is what he's saying. Not one of you should teach a child, teach anybody to get rid of any part of the law. And we do that all the time, don't we? We say it to our own hearts, and we surely say it to others. God's not really worried with that. It's just a little blank lie. What kind? It's just a little white lie. I mean, I just hedged the truth a little. I mean, it was just a little gossip. It was just a little slander. It was just a little, and we just say it's a little. And God's saying you, you can't diminish the law. We as Christians, we have to have a large view of the law. That following Christ is not following subjective inner impulses. Following Christ is not following subjective inner impulses. We don't get to follow God on our own standards. We don't get to say, hey God, I love you, and I'm going to come to you, but let me tell you how I'm going to come to you. I'm going to keep having the lifestyle that I have. I'm going to keep living in the manner in which I'm going to live. I'm going to view money and politics and race uh, and all of these things. I'm going to view them the same way that I've always viewed them. I need my fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. Who would want to go to hell? I've heard terrible things about it. So I want to go to heaven. So I'm going to walk through the aisle. Uh, I'm going to get uh, baptized. I'm going to say hallelujah. But I don't want you uh, to mess with my life. God says it's not based on you. You don't get to choose the law. It originated from me, and therefore, you have to deal with my law, which says this, love the Lord your God, your, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't take it lightly. Honor his day and worship on it. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't. I mean, all of that. All of a sudden, we go, huh, this, and then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is the unpacking of that, because we're going to go, I didn't murder. He said, ah, have you been angry, right? I've never cheated on my, uh, on my spouse, but you've looked upon another person lustfully, haven't you? Oh, all of a sudden, we have a high view of the law, and it's penetrating sense within our lives because it involves knowing what he desires and giving our every effort to joyfully obey it. And what we find is then our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. And here's what that means, and I only have a few minutes. When Jesus said, your righteousness needs to, to uh, surpass that of the Pharisees, let me tell you for a moment, if you don't know who a Pharisee was, a Pharisee was a church leader, uh, and it was a person, it was a man uh, who uh, lived a righteous outward life. Uh, they didn't cuss, they didn't dance, they didn't smoke, they didn't drink, they didn't date people who did. Uh, they knew all the prayers, they memorized all the scriptures. When you had a sword drill with them, they were the ones who... They knew it right there, Ezekiel 4.4, 4. Ah, he beat me again, and they knew it all, and then they tied, they even tied, he said, all the way down to dill and mint of, oh, I've got two pieces of dill, I've got to take that much off. Jesus says that's an improper view of righteousness. They don't have a high view of righteousness. They actually have a low view of righteousness because they think that they can actually accomplish my righteousness that they can obey the law. They have diminished the law. They have distilled the law down into all of these rules and regulations that they can accomplish. And when they accomplish it, guess what? They feel really good about themselves. Isn't that how we feel? 
when we distill God's word down to something that we can accomplish and we accomplish it, we sound an awful lot like a Pharisee who goes to confession and the confession sounds like this, Lord, you're lucky to have me here today. Could have been doing some other things, but I'm here to bless me. Lord, thank you that I'm not like Bob. What a mess. Thank you that I'm not like Susie. Lord, thank you for just letting me be me. I'm awesome. I tithe, I pray, I know all the books of the Bible in order. I can give you all 12 disciples and even the one who came later. I, I, this is awesome, God. Just thank you for not letting me be like everybody else, as pathetic and horrible as they are. Ah. Jesus says, you haven't understood the law. Because he said to the scribes and the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He was saying this, a proper view of the law is a righteousness that surpasses that uh, of the Pharisees. And here's what the proper understanding uh, of the law and of righteousness is. I can never do it on my own, and neither can you. Christ's standards are too high, friends. I messed up with a silly donut hole today. I'm condemned under the law, and it crushes me. And I look at it, and what I understand is God is more holy and more awesome and perfect than I ever dared dream. There is a depth to his care about perfection. When Jesus says just in verse 48 later, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. His perfections are huge. And what I know about myself now is I go, I'm worse than I ever wanted to believe about myself. Cheer up. If you're at that place, cheer up. You want to know why? Christ is your righteousness. There's a cross where Jesus said, my dad's perfections you could never do. And you are, you have no idea how bad you are. But I do, and I knew that I had to stand in your place, and I had to come, and I had to give you my perfect righteousness. I had to give you all that I've done on your behalf, so when you stand before my Father one day, and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? You don't go, well, because I'm not like so-and-so, and I'm a whole lot better than this person. No, you go, because of Him who stands on my behalf. Because what I know about me is I deserve to be condemned under the law. But Christ, rich in mercy. But God, rich in grace. But God took Christ and gave his perfection to me. So that guess what God sees in you right now? Folks, I don't have a whole lot of energy. we got enough for this. And this is it. He sees Christ in you. Man, I want to be a Baptist pastor so often. At least somebody can say an amen. Amen. Folks, that really is the best news. But you know who doesn't get excited about that? Pharisees. Religious church folk. We don't get very excited about that. 
But if you understand your desperate need of Christ, that news and that news alone makes you go, this is awesome. And then what you do is you come back to the Father and you say, hey, I'm not looking for loopholes. I'm not trying to diminish your law. I'm going to give every bit of effort that I have within my person to honor you in the life that I live. And so when you say don't get drunk or have, marriage out, or have sex outside of marriage and, and to uh, not be prideful uh, and to not gossip and to not do this and to not, and you tell me to do these things, to be generous and to love others and to break down all the old barriers, I am joyfully in all power that I have going to try to do that. But here's what I know, God, I'm going to do it really poorly. How many of you as followers of Jesus Christ still mess up? Any of you? Raise your hands, put them up, and look around. Honestly, look around. You need to know that there are other believers in this place who mess up. And why you need to know that is you're not the only one. But here's what you do when you mess up. You repent and believe. Father, I repent of messing up right here. I willfully, and sometimes accidentally, but either way, I repent. And here's what I believe. I believe that Christ is my righteousness, and I'm still accepted by you. I believe that Christ is my righteousness and I am forgiven in the beloved and I will stand and I will not allow Satan's condemnation to come and enter into my heart. I will not allow it to enter into my child's heart. I will not put them under that pressure which you haven't put on me. I'm going to fight for their hearts and I'm going to fight for my heart and I'm going to fight in this way and I'm going to repent and I'm going to believe. Folks, that's a high righteousness. And the Pharisees would go, we don't like people like you. Guess what they did to Jesus? They killed him. Because he exposed their hearts. People who understand the grace of Jesus Christ are usually not invited to dinner with religious folks who love to go to church and talk about it. And to talk about their righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. That Christ did what we could never do. He fulfilled the law's demands. He quieted Sinai's loud voice. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. Let's pray.